The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. We have come with open hearts, oh let the ancient words impart. We have come with open hearts, oh let the Take your Bibles and open them with me if you would to Mark chapter 2. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 2 in just a moment. Uh, while you're turning there, I want to ask you some questions. I do that pretty often. This time I just want you to think within your heart. Don't uh, raise any hands. There won't be a raising of hand answer anyway. But how many times in your life have you found comfort in knowing that Jesus is in charge? How many times in your life have you found peace in knowing that Jesus is in charge? How many times in your life have you found courage in knowing that Jesus is in charge? How many times in your life have you realized that in all things, Jesus is in charge. I have no idea. Shane and I didn't coordinate because when I gave him my initial sermon topic and title just a moment or two ago, I saw the puzzled look on his face because I could see that he thought to himself, there's no song for that. Uh, it being as I've changed it a little bit, it would have been more easily adaptable to what we were singing. But the song that he did lead, I don't know if it was by intention or accident, he lifted me is exactly where we stand. In the account we're about to read in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and you better get your Bible because I'm not a good reader, so you'll need to see it for yourself. But in this account, I don't know that what if this man, the paralytic, had not been alive at the time of the writing of this hymn, he would not have written such words himself. I don't know what was going through his mind exactly, but I know as Jesus spoke, and I don't know for sure that he did, but I can imagine reached down toward him. I'm certain that he began to comprehend and understand the power of Jesus, the authority that he had, the ability that he had to lift him in every situation. Mark chapter 2 and verse 1 beginning. And again he entered into Capernaum. And after some days it was noise that he was in the house. And straightway many were gathered together insomuch as there was no room to receive him, no, not as much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they came unto him, beginning with a, be, be, and they came unto him bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press or the crowds, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately 
when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, take up thy bed, and walk, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power, hath authority on this earth to forgive sins. And he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy bed, and go thy way in thine house to thine house. And immediately he rose up, took his bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch as they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never saw this on this fashion. Just those last words, do you think that those people, all those witnesses that day, do you think that their minds were blown away by the power God possessed? Do you think that that paralytic man, as he, I don't think, walked away, I assume eventually ran away from the situation, that he was not just extraordinarily impressed with the power that Jesus possessed? Do you think any of those people that day seeing the situation, witnessing it firsthand, many of them, seeing what Jesus had, the authority that he possessed, were not again impressed by exactly what he could, was capable of doing. I have no doubt. As a matter of fact, in my estimation, the key verse of this text, albeit we oftentimes see it from other perspectives, and we'll see some others, has to do with the fact that Jesus presented to them in verse 10, again I read, but that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. If you look at that word power, of course I inserted a while ago the word authority right behind that just to help to clarify, to describe what it was. You understand that word, that particular word, comes from a Greek word, exthusian. I don't know that I say that correctly. Probably I'm far from it. But it literally means that Jesus Christ exuded from every pore, from every orifice of his entire body, all the power that God possessed. He stood before them on earth as we oftentimes illustrate it for understanding as not just a man, but yet a man who stood before them as God placed in a body. How comforting. How peaceful. How encouraging that must have been. I want to take you on a little bit of a journey this morning, and I'll tell you up front, there are actually, in my mind, the way I broke this out, and you might can see this or not, I've got this text broken into eight parts. Uh, no need to panic. But I want to take you back through this text and notice with you every single time within the text that Jesus began to build, that Jesus began to, in some ways, even illustrate the power that he was about to present. 
I want to show you in every way that as we go through difficult and trying and troubling times in our lives, whether they be physical, emotional, even spiritual troubles in our lives, which ultimately Jesus upon this man will work on all, that Jesus has the ability, the authority, and the power to take care of our lives in those situations. So go back up with me to verse 1. Let's read across that again for yet another purpose and start to understand this. And I'll put with these, each of these eight, we may get to two or three or five or eight, I don't know, but I'll put with each of these but one word. You can outline it in your Bible. If all you have is a pew Bible, write in it. That may benefit someone one day. But in the very first verse to reread it, it says, And again he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noised that he was in the house. Literally there it says, and it was noised or it was spoken or cried out that Jesus had come home. Now I get that Jesus was said of him, and he said it of himself, even that he had not nowhere, nowhere on this earth for which to lay his head. But that doesn't take away from the fact that because Jesus didn't have the physical bedroom, uh, the physical setup of a home, a house, a building like we have or may have access to, that Jesus didn't have a home. Jesus, for whatever purpose, had made his home base in life seemingly in Capernaum. And he had come there time and time again and spent time in these areas. And every time he would leave and go out and uh, do a part of, which he's just begun according to Mark's account across the page, his three, three and a half year spiritual journey of such, he always took opportunity to come home. But the word I want you to put with this, if you're writing it down, put the word circuit there. Because even though Jesus had chosen to go into other areas, even though Jesus had been to other places, Jesus was in a sense nothing more than what we would have called in the last century a circuit-riding preacher. As much as he was, an, uh, as he was a, a, a minister, as much as he was a preacher of sorts, as much as he was a proclaimer, Jesus Christ was basically an evangelist. That is, he carried with him everywhere that he went, everywhere that he stepped, everywhere that he had opportunity, he carried with him the gospel of, we would refer to it as Jesus Christ, but he would basically call it the good news of God. And he made a circuit of sorts in doing that. You say, well, how do you get that? Well, the wording there begins to clue me that that was the case because it says then again he had been in or was coming into Capernaum. Days had gone by when he had not been there. Now, if you want to look with me, we won't flip or flop, but you can probably see it on the same page, hopefully. If you want to look with me, back up the page there over to Mark chapter 1. We're in Mark chapter 2 and verse 1. Mark chapter 1, look at what happens there beginning in verse 35. And in the morning, rising up a great while before, he went out and departed into a solitary place, and he prayed. And Simon and they that were with him followed after him. And when they found him, they said unto him, All men seek thee. Now they're, they're getting the idea that Jesus has gone off and done something and that he's leaving the crowds out. He's not allowing the people to come to him, what have you. Of course, they must have known the custom of Jesus to go and to pray. But in verse 38, and he said, that is Jesus, he said unto them, Let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, therefore, came I forth. Meaning this is my purpose. This is what I do. This is when I do. 
And he preached in their synagogues and throughout all of Galilee and cast out devils. Now I want to break this down and we're talking about the circuit here. Jesus going on a circuit to preach. I want to break down this into two different areas, one of which we've already covered across in what he just said, and that is every time Jesus traveled, his purpose behind that was to preach. Jesus saw no other reason, I suppose, reason, I suppose for living. Jesus knew that it was his duty, it was his charge, it was God's will for him that he preached, and ultimately he preached the gospel. As a matter of fact, jump back across the page of Mark chapter 1 in verse 14, and here it says, And now after John was put in the prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying the time and the full of the kingdoms has come of God, and at that, ye, and at, and, hold on, and it is at hand, repent ye, believe Ye, or believe the gospel. Jesus found opportunity for that. Jesus understood that it was his purpose to preach and teach the gospel. Now, how do we illustrate this? How do we understand it? How do we apply it? Question comes to my mind. Am I doing the work and will of Jesus? If I want to claim in my life to be like him, to be as him, to imitate him, to follow him, Am I preaching the gospel? You say, well, you, you, you're able to do that right now for a few minutes. No, I'm talking about all of us. In every day that we live, are we actually preaching the gospel? It doesn't involve always a pulpit. It doesn't involve a podium. It doesn't even have to involve a, a set and, 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 and very structured system of teaching or preaching. Am I preaching with my life? Jesus took that opportunity. Not only, not only during this circuit do we see His purpose. I think we can easily notice in this, and again, this is the context, not only opportunities He took, but the operation through which He went. How much of a priority was it for Jesus to preach? Did Jesus see it as being an urgent thing? Did Jesus see it as being a needed thing? I want you to take time to do this on your own, and it would take a little bit of time. There's 16 chapters throughout the book, or four uh, coupled into what we see there's the book of Mark. But I want you to thumb through the book of Mark, read through it, whatever, examine it, and I want you to look for the word immediately. Matter of fact, when you're looking for the word immediately, the King James translation actually mixes things up a bit, although it, it's oftentimes quoting exactly the same Greek word to back it up. But you need to not only be looking for the word immediately, but also looking for the word straightway. Look for the word, and it's going to be used here in, in part of the text I'll point out in a minute, verse 30 of chapter 1. Look even for the word anon. We don't understand what that is, but all those words mean that Jesus had an urgency about it. As a matter of fact, just looking up to where we get to in our text, chapter 2 and verse 12, you go back into chapter 1, you'll find many a times, such as in verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, verse 20, verse 21, verse 28, verse 30, verse 31, verse 42, uh, verse uh, 43, chapter 2 and verse 8, and chapter 2 and verse 12, those words like immediately, straightway, and as I said a moment ago in verse 30 of chapter 1, the word anon is used. And what it shows me is that even though Jesus was preaching and teaching, he understood there was an urgency to that. He understood there was a priority that had to be given to that. 
And although each of those verses I just named, and, and you won't remember or took time to note, I know it was impossible to do, all of those verses don't even speak of Jesus. They speak of a period in which he was around people, but it speaks of how other people, when they were affected by him, they saw the urgency. They saw the immediacy that needed to take place. Therefore, we learn from that in this circuit of Jesus' preaching that we too ought to see the urgency and the immediacy of whatever we do for God. But how easy is it? I, I can tell you from my life, I know how easy it is. How easy is it to say to ourselves, you know what, I'll do God's will on the morrow. And I'll get my life together on the morrow. And once I get my life right, then I'll be happy to share my experiences in my life. And more than that, even more importantly, I'll share the life of Jesus with others because then I'll be that example they need. The only thing certain about our time in which we live is that there's nothing certain about our time in which we live. We stand on a razor's edge between time as we understand and comprehend it and an eternity that we cannot comprehend whatsoever. And we need to be on the circuit just as Jesus was. That represented even His authority. That shows even His power. But look on with me a little bit farther than that. Not only note his circuit, notice the crowd. You knew we were going to get there. In the latter part of verse 1, to read with the whole verse and go through verse 2, and he began and entered into Capernaum, and after some days it was noised that he was in the house, and straightway, that's that word immediately, by the way, again, and straightway many were gathered together insomuch as there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as, as about the door, and he preached the word unto them. So look about this. Now, we have different accounts, by the way. You have to understand all, well, not all four, three of the four gospel accounts carry a very, very closely parallel account to what happens here. They have an account where Jesus comes in, heals a paralytic man, in doing so also takes away his sins by word, where the, where the Pharisees or scribes, as they're referred to here, where they begin to attack Jesus and say, hey, wait a minute, no way you're taking away sins, only God can do that. They all have those accounts. <coughs> You'll find things like that. Over in Mark, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. You'll find that in Luke. Also chapter 5, verses 18 to 26. And each one of those give a little variant, a little bit different detail about what takes place. But without exception, they all admit one thing. Jesus was speaking to a packed house. Jesus had brought the crowds. He had brought the thrones of people to him. They were all gathered around him to hear what he had to say and to see what he had to do. <clears throat> and what we learn about those crowds, not from those two texts or three texts, but throughout all the New Testament, we learned that every time those crowds gathered, they were filled with various people. We learned that every time they were there, they were filled with certain characters of types of people, maybe some of those who were there who were only curious. I don't know if you've seen this happen before, but if you've ever 
been out and about, it could be at Walmart even, and you see a crowd gathered around any area, what is your first instinctive thing to do? You're going to see what's happening. You're going to come over there. And I don't know, back uh, decades ago, it was uh, the Kmart, uh, Kmart uh, Blue Light Specials. It didn't matter what was on sale. You were there. You were there to see. You were there to be curious. You were there to try to find out what was happening. Someone uh, falls ill out in the middle of a street. They're lying there by themselves. You think not, nothing of it, really. You let a crowd gather. People start pouring out of their houses. Crowds are all crowds. But they do it out of curiosity. And because that is the case in life, because that is the case in the world, I have a mind to know it's sometimes the case inside of the church. Where a crowd gathers. Many gather for various reasons. Some of those gather out of mere curiosity. Same time, I notice about crowds sometimes, and I think it is the case evidently with here. With this instance, there are those who gather who are counterfeits. Who they want to present themselves in one way, but in reality, they're not exactly what they're trying to be presented as. If it were the case among no others, these scribes that across on the next page, for me at least, that began to accuse Jesus in their hearts of being a blasphemer, that began to question Jesus in, his, in, in their hearts, whether or not any man could forgive sins, save God, or anyone could forgive sins, save God, those men, those scribes, Pharisees parallel with that, those people were counterfeits. I won't mention it here. I may remember to mention it a little bit later, but you'll find several occasions if you know your, your prophecies or your prophets, if you know the things that were said about the coming Messiah, you can evidently see that many of these men there who were experts in the law, experts in the prophets, they should have seen in front of them, this has to be the Messiah. And therefore, I would assume some of them knew that it was and said that they loved God and said that they sought the Messiah. They weren't willing to admit that day he was that. Some were counterfeits. Some of those people, and again, I'm drawing this sort of kind of from the text, some of those people by that time were also concerned. You have to understand, with these throngs of people gathering, these crowds gathering around, there were those who maybe had heard that Jesus was the Christ, who maybe had heard that this was the Messiah, and maybe had thought within themselves, you know, I'm not exactly sure if all this is bearing is true. But I'm concerned if I don't go and listen. If I don't at least open my mind to it, I might miss it. Now, those are good people. Those are people who are represented sometimes inside of four walls like these on the Lord's Day, a Sunday. And those are people who really, I mean, they're really concerned. If the Bible says it, I at least want to be aware of it. I at least want to know that it's, it's been said and, and that it's there.
But you see, being concerned doesn't necessarily bring you to the right end result. How many of you have ever woke up in the morning and just didn't feel right? Stomach ache, headache, achy feeling all over. You're concerned about that. And maybe for hours in the morning you think to yourself, you know, I, I don't feel as well today as I had hoped I would, and I'm, I'm worried. Maybe something's wrong. You know, so-and-so over here said they had the flu, and this one had this virus, and, and this one, man, this one, this guy here, uh, I mean, he's, he's got cancer. That's concern. But it may not ever take you to the doctor. There are those who come to worship at times that are concerned. But with a great physician standing before them, they ignore. They ignore what really goes on. To go ahead and cut the list off, I'll add only one more. There were those who were there that day, however, who were committed. I don't know how many the number would have been, but I can assume... Out of the twelve of his disciples, apostles that were gathered there, out of that number, we know the rest of the story. We know that at least eleven of those twelve were committed to the Lord. Oh, they would have their times. They would have their moments, such as what Peter had and such as what all of those men had as they ran like scared rabbits on the eventual night of his crucifixion when they were not even as willing as to go into the courtroom for the most part to even see the proceeding with him. But at the end of that, 11 of those 12 would ultimately prove their commitment to our Lord. I know there are those who find themselves in an assembly like this who are exactly that. They're committed. They're looking, we're looking for something that Jesus would say and do before us that we could learn and gather from and live our lives with. That's the crowd. But not only notice this circuit that he was on, the crowd that had gathered, but notice the crippled man. And this is very important here in the text. Go back over and look with me, if you would, in uh, verse uh, 4. I'm sorry, verse 3 and 4. And they came unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was, and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. Think about this crippled man there in verse 3. What was his problem? What was really ailing him? Well, we know ultimately there would be a spiritual level to his ailment. We know ultimately that's where things would lie, but his initial problem was very simple. He couldn't walk. He couldn't take a step on his own, I assume. He was born of these four men because why? Because he evidently could not bring himself to the place where he needed to be. I would assume, however, if he couldn't walk, he couldn't work. I mean, I get it, and in today's time in society, there, there are mobility devices, there are wheelchairs, there are access and, and would be access to some kind of health care or uh, therapies that could bring a, pers a person in this position to, to be able to work, but in that day, that was not the case. Every other individual we read of in Scripture in a similar position as he ended up being beggars outside of city gates. 
But what's really true about this man, and I don't know that it concerned him as much as of yet, but remember while Jesus was standing on earth, standing with two feet, they were not living under the laws in which we live, they were living under the Old Testament laws. Therefore, this man may not have been able to walk. He certainly may not have been able to work. There's one thing that is absolutely sure. He would have not been able to fully worship. The Levitical laws bring that to our attention, help us to understand that. Leviticus chapter 21 and verse 17 and read the following in the context around it. But if a man was lame, if he had a malady, he can come into the completely in the temple. He couldn't be there and be present with them in their worship. That's a problem. So this man certainly has a problem, but he has potential. The potential lies in the fact that he would eventually make it to Jesus. Now here's our thing. What's our problem? What is my problem? What is the issue that I'm dealing with in my life? And you can name the physical, you can name the emotional, and we best be talking about it and thinking of the spiritual, but what is my problem? Because if I cannot walk to Jesus, I cannot work for Jesus, and really in a sense I cannot worship Him spiritually. The next part of this, and we're moving from that, from the circuit to the crowd, to the cripple, to the companions. Look at these companions right here. These are great guys. The latter part of verse 3, he was born of four, and when they could not come nigh unto them, they, to the press, they uncovered the roof where he was, and they had broken it up. They let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. Notice what these companions were doing. First of all, think about the reasoning behind this. They, they knew that their friend, however they had become acquainted, however they had uh, gotten to the place where they were in life, they knew that their friend could not uh, make it in life without assistance. He wasn't going anywhere without help. And they saw that as an issue to which they wanted to assist. They saw that as a, as a shortcoming that this man had where they decided for themselves, I'll stand in the gap of that and I'll bring this man from this place and yonder and wherever else he may need to go. But ultimately they saw where he needed to get. And in this account, he needed to go but to one place and that's to Jesus. That these companions love this man. I don't know what the extent of their relationship was. It's not really revealed here. But they were concerned about it. Here's the thing. Am I concerned about bringing my companions, my friends, my family, my acquaintances, my co-workers, my classmates, am I concerned about bringing them Toward Jesus. It's where his hope would lie. It's where the possibilities in life were opened. It's the place he had to get. Shane has said it a number of times at various, for various reasons, I know, but he gives the possibilities, at least in his mind, and I have to agree wholeheartedly. Why would we not bring someone to the Lord? Is it because we don't care? 
Is it because we don't believe that they need such? The greatest one thing I can do in my life for any soul who's around me is to lead them to Christ. That's it. You say, well, I enjoy being a companion. I enjoy their friendship. I enjoy the relationship. I enjoy all of these things, and I don't want to... I don't want to, to knock that off kilter because of, you know, something I might say that might offend. Someone will announce in social media is the way in which this is easier. Now, I need to ride to the doctor. I need to go and, and get groceries. I need in this and I need that. And people will sometimes, not nearly enough, but will sometimes stand up and say, well, I got that. I can help you with that. That's a, that's a problem. They fail to post it. But the real need in life has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the fact that they need us to bring them unto the Lord. Next week is uh, homecoming. Specifically, specifically this year, ask of us that we contact uh, whomever, but mainly that we contact those who have wandered away. It may be a rare case. We haven't spoken to those people in a long time. Most likely that's not it. We probably still maintain the relationship. We probably still have the contact. We may even probably in some cases still have the friendships, the, the camaraderie that we've had in the past. But they're lost. And our only concern has to be bringing them home. These companions would do that. Look at the compassion of Jesus. And I know we've, we've got to run very, very quickly. Look at the compassion of Jesus. And when Jesus, verse 5, saw their faith, He said in the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. What is the first thing Jesus did? Well, as a human... And he uses the term son of man, which by the way, seemingly is one of the most uh, regular, if nothing else, ways that he would refer to himself. He's saying to them in even that statement, I am man, but I'm also God. It had to be. It had to be the first thing he saw. You know, we think of these roofs, and I didn't go into this detail, and I won't go far into it, but you know, these roofs, it said they broke it up. One of the accounts, I think it's Luke's account, said they pulled up the tiles. Nonetheless, Jesus is preaching. He is speaking. He's there. He's delivering the word. That's admittedly what he had gone there to do. The crowds were there for that. But as these mostly dirt roofs are being broken up above him. There must have been debris. There must have been dust and dirt and, and all types of things falling in on him. And I'll admit something to you, and, and we, we generally work through this, but I'll admit something to you. As, as someone who preaches from a pulpit or behind a podium, more times than not, at least tradition has brought us to a point that us preachers, we don't like to be disturbed. You know, we don't want to be disruptive and interrupted and, and taken off a course and lose our thought. We don't like that. Jesus was not aggravated by that. 
There were other times when people would try to come to Jesus and, and his disciples say, Go on, go on, he got he got better things to do. He, he just, da, da, da. Jesus was never offended by such because he had compassion on this man. Luke's account says that these men not only brought him and dropped him through the roof, their intention was to put him right at the feet of Jesus. I want to assure you of something. And I've lived this, I'm living this. This man was brought to Jesus to be healed. Evidently. Jesus as the Son of Man had to have seen his malady as quickly as anything and knew that's what was expected. But that's not at all where Jesus went. Not first. You may be in your life at a place, and I'll just use the physical to describe it. Again, there, been there, been, been, I'm there. Where physically, you're sick. You're dying. You're hurting. You're, dis, you're depressed. You're downtrodden. And all you ask from a human perspective is, is just... Just heal me, Lord. Just make me better. I have to say this. Jesus may never, may never heal you. But He'll always save you. That's comfort in itself. Thy sins be forgiven. In the day of this man, it was very common belief that if I was sick and ailing and especially in a condition like that, there must have been a sin behind it. Maybe this man felt that. Maybe this man knew that. Maybe this man thought to himself, you know, if I had just lived right. The palsy here means he had been let loose. It indicates possibly what we might say today, he may have had a stroke. If I just live right. Jesus goes directly to the problem out of compassion. But when Jesus shows compassion, His enemies show conflict. But there were certain, and by the way, New Testament terms, certain means commonly. The average. <laughs> but there were certain of the scribes there reasoning in their hearts and said, why does this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? Do they want to fight? Well, first of all, Jesus apparently didn't give them time to, to vocalize their, their, their thoughts. But he read their hearts. Now, this is a, a very obscure... Uh, text and you'll have to examine it, you'll have to discover it for yourself, but if you'll go back to Isaiah 11 and verse 3, you'll have to do that at home on your own, go back to Isaiah 11, 11 and verse 3. The King James does not interpret it in a way I don't know that we can understand, and I don't understand Hebrew, so that's even harder, but Isaiah 11 and verse 3 basically, in a sense, already predicts that Jesus would know our thoughts. 
There's actually a word or two there, and it's Hebrew, not English, we won't see it, but there's a word or two in there that indicate that he would know our thoughts by taking a breath and smelling who we are. Now that's the sweet-smelling savor. It's listed several other times. But the scribes of that day were commonly known to teach that when and if the Messiah would come, that he would know their thoughts by smelling them. That's, that's far-fetched, I get, but that's what they thought. And they're thinking. It's not in their mouths. It's in their minds. They're thinking. And Jesus right then says, why are you saying this? Why are you thinking this way? And they missed it. Someone there should have said, this is it. This is him. This is the Messiah. They missed it. Instead, there was nothing but conflict. Only God can forgive sins. And I can see the men popping uh, they're proverbial, they didn't have suspenders, and, and say only God can do that. And basically Jesus' reply was, and it's not listed here, but it basically Jesus said, you got that right. It was conflict. But thanks be to God, it led to the challenge there in verse 8. And immediately Jesus perceived their spirit and reasoned with themselves and saith unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven, uh, forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, take up thy bed and walk? Which one's easier? The answer was simple. If he says this man's sins are forgiven, that's all that he does, we can walk away and say, He's a nut. He didn't forgive that man's sins no more than I'm standing here. But he did it first. But when he turned and said to this man, as he will, Arise, take up thy bed and walk, and he did so, he proved both points. You say, well, how does, what does that mean to me? It means to me that in light of conflict, that Jesus is willing to challenge our conflict and to stand up to it. These scribes, these Pharisees in their day were nothing to be sneezed at. They were men of power themselves and authority, so they thought themselves. And Jesus challenged them to the very core. Jesus is willing to take a stand for us. And then lastly, verse 11, I say unto thee, rise, take up thy bed, go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose and took up his bed and went forth before them all. In so much as they were amazed and glorified God, saying, Never saw we it on this fashion. Jesus took a room full of people, many of which were there for all the reasons we described earlier, some of which were there because they were curious, some of which were there for, for all these different various reasons. And he turned the room around. It's interesting, when they tried to bring this man in the room, there wasn't any room to get through. There wasn't any way they were getting in that room. Not even could they stand outside the door. But once this man is brought in and laying at the feet of Jesus, and he stood to walk, 
He went before them. I'm guessing, and that's all it is, a guess. I'm guessing that when this man stood up, when he leapt as if he had popped out of a toaster, that some of those men fell back. And they're blown away by it. And even the word amaze there is where we get our English word for ecstasy. It means they, they had no mind about him anymore. They couldn't process it. They couldn't conceive it. And he marched right through the middle of them. And folks, that is the victory to which we stand. That is the authority that Jesus possesses to take us before our enemies, even the greatest of them being sin, and to take us right through them and right over the top and to make a way for us. When I was in the Memphis School of Preaching, I was exposed to a lot, but one thing has stood in my mind and will stand in my mind for the rest of my days. And it's what we did every single day in chapel we took a song that's probably in this blue book. I know the Lord will find a way for me. And we inserted one word and said this, I know the Lord will make a way for me. If you're here this morning and you're struggling, and you're dealing with difficulties, and discouragement, and pain, and you don't know exactly where you're going to turn, Turn to Jesus. And if it takes it, I pray before the throne of God today that there are friends and companions in this room who will be willing to bear you up and lay you down at His feet. And you'll meet with a compassionate, loving Lord who will give you exactly what you need. If you're here this morning, you're not a child of God's. You need to be at His feet. You need to be laying on the ground, on your knees, your heart stretched out, and asking Jesus to fill the void and to heal your soul. If you're a child of God's, and you're finding yourself in any condition but that which is right with God, you find yourself at the same place. You walk through the crowd. You walk through your times of trouble. And you enter in one day into the kingdom of heaven. You stand there at the feet of the Lord. And you make a way because He's already made the way. If you're here this morning, you have any need whatsoever. We're bearing you up. Turn to God. Why together we stand and as we sing.